The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Thank you, Chris. We're going to uh, do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, normally we preach and uh, give a full message, and so if you uh, are expecting that, we encourage you to come back. Uh, we're going to start a series next week on biblical shepherding, and I encourage you to be a part of that. Um, for most of you, you know that we've had a fall retreat this weekend. We've just had a wonderful time together as a church family. Friday night, uh, we had a, a wonderful service together. Uh, two services yesterday, two sessions yesterday, and just able to hear from God's truth. And just a wonderful time. And so we felt like it would be appropriate for you to hear briefly from our speaker. For those of you that were not here to uh, able to be here at our weekend, we thought it would be uh, appropriate for you to hear just kind of a, a summary of what we've learned this weekend about the church. And so I've asked Darren Bowers, our speaker uh, for our fall retreat, to take about 20, 25 minutes and highlight for you the things that you've heard we've heard together as a church family over this weekend so you're able to benefit from that i've asked him to do that for a couple of reasons one because what he taught is so crucial for us as a church family to understand about the church and the priority of the church and the centrality of the church in our lives and so i, I believe that what he's going to share this morning is is profitable for us as a church family as we start another ministry year together secondly the, the other reason i've asked him to do this is because it fits perfectly with baptism that when we understand the church, then we can properly understand baptism. And we have a context for really comprehending how baptism fits into the, the church. And so um, after Darren speaks, I'm going to take about 10 minutes and just kind of set the stage for our, our baptism service. And then we'll have uh, the people who are going to be baptized come up and share their testimonies. Our speaker this weekend has been Darren Bowers, a, a great friend of mine. He uh, and his wife Libby are here with their family, their four children. We met uh, Darren and Libby in uh, seminary in 1998 back in California in Los Angeles, and uh, they became fast friends and dear friends to us and have over the years just, uh, we've appreciated them so much for their love for Christ and uh, appreciated Darren's commitment to the Word of God as he preaches it faithfully. And so we asked him to come and be our speaker this weekend, and he's done a, a faithful, wonderful job to bring the, the Word of God. We've had three solid meals of the Word of God together, and we've asked him to come and, and uh, share a portion of what we've heard together this weekend. So, Darren, would you please come and minister the Word? Let's welcome Darren Bowers as he comes. Well, I want to thank you for the opportunity being here uh, together with you this weekend. It's been a, a great weekend. I've really enjoyed. There's a number of faces I can look out here now and uh, recognize, and uh, it's really been a joy to to worship with you this morning. Uh, uh, the, the praise and worship we've we've already enjoyed has been uh, been great. And uh, I, I have to tell you uh, before we get started, I I love your senior pastor. Uh, I really do. Uh, he is he has been a very good friend. Uh, uh, he said some nice things about me, but there's a whole lot more that I could say about him. And his his uh, life is is stamped onto mine in many ways. He had a real profound impact on me when we were together in seminary. And so uh, this is a real privilege for me to stand up here where he uh, normally is. So I'm, I'm glad to be with you, and I bring you greetings from uh, the land of bratwurst and cheese uh, across the pond there in Wisconsin. Um, but it has been good to be here with you. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2. And did I hear him right? He said 40 to 45 minutes. Is that right? Did I hear that? Well, we're going to do some, uh, some summary this morning of the things we've been talking about 
there is this thing called the church. And uh, I love the church. And we, uh, we want to take a look a little bit at what God's Word says about it. But before we do that, I would invite you to Ephesians 2, verse 1. This is all of us, okay? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the condition of humanity, dead in trespasses and sins, following after the lusts of the flesh. That's humanity. That's the situation we all find ourselves in. And yet, God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, has redeemed us through the blood of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've been singing about this morning, right? That we have been made alive, though having been dead. But look at verse 10. He has saved us for a purpose. That purpose is in verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He has taken a bunch of dead people and made them alive by His grace through the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, made us alive and then created us for good works that we would walk in them. He has taken a people who once were dead and made them alive, and brought them together into this thing called the church. And that's what this is. That's what you are. A collection of those who've experienced new life in Christ. This is a body made to do good things to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to do those together as a body. And Paul, after laying out what salvation is, he's going to give us a few metaphors for what the church is in the book of Ephesians. There's one in Ephesians chapter 2, there's one in Ephesians chapter 4, and there's one in Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to take a brief look at what these metaphors are. If you look with me, if you're still there in Ephesians chapter 2, if you go down to verse 19, he's been talking about this salvation that we have. 
He's been talking about how God has taken Jew and Gentile. You can't get people more different than Jew and Gentile. He takes them and brings them together in one body. And this is what he says. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Listen, Paul says this thing called the church, this thing called the local church, Maranatha Bible Church, this is the house of God. Not the walls, not the stone and the carpet and the roof, But the people are the dwelling of God. God dwells with and in His people. In the Old Covenant under Moses, God dwelt in a building. They erected a tabernacle and God's Shekinah glory came right into that tabernacle. And Israel was blessed of all people because God Himself was there with them. Oh, how much more blessed are you? Are we? Because God's glory now dwells not in this building, but in this people. You are God's temple. Every time another sinner acknowledges his sin before God and comes to faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of sin and placing faith in Christ, every time that happens, another brick is added to the wall. Another plank is thrown up. Another tile on the roof. God is building His dwelling place. And He's doing it in you. The church isn't, isn't a building and property. and You've got wonderful property here and that's a blessing of God. But that's not the church. That's not the dwelling of God. The dwelling of God is in you as a people. Well, what does that mean for us then? If God's dwelling place is in you, what does that mean? Well, one of the things it means is we don't want to destroy what God is building, right? And we talked about it this weekend. How how can we go about destroying God's building? If God's building, if God's house is a physical structure, we destroy it by letting the rats chew on things and letting leaks come through the roof and all that kind of stuff, right? But if God's house, where God dwells, is in His people and among His people, we destroy God's house by division and dissension and disunity, right? Every time another word of gossip leaves the mouths of one of His people, it's like someone's taking a sledgehammer and knocked a hole in the wall. Every time we, we, we embody a critical spirit, It's like we've set fire to the roof. So God is calling us as His people to uphold the structure that He's building. Uphold the church. Strengthen and support the church. The church is God's house. God's holy temple. The people who are the church are God's house. We're to strengthen and support and uphold her. Go with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. 
We're to uphold God's house and strengthen God's house. The church, the people of God, is the dwelling place of God. But the church is also known as the body of Christ. I'm going to read some text here in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jump down to verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Here's Paul's next analogy, his next metaphor for the church. The church is the body of Christ. A moment ago, he was talking about the church as God's dwelling place. Now he's talking about the church as a body. A body has parts, right? And every part, when it's doing its part, when it's operating correctly, every part contributes to the good and the health of the body, doesn't it? Exactly. What happens when one of your parts is not functioning properly? It affects the entire rest of the body, doesn't it? Uh, In December, I was uh, playing basketball, and I landed wrong on my foot and snapped a ligament in my ankle. Just broke it right in half. Um, I don't recommend it, by the way, if you uh, have an option. Um, And so I I had a couple surgeries. I was on crutches for four months. Uh, and many of you have had, you know, we, we could multiply our stories, right, of the things that, that have happened to us or problems that we've had. And as you probably, probably doesn't surprise you at all, you spent four months on crutches, and my ankle wasn't the only thing I had to worry about, right? Then it started being my right knee. I was putting all my, my weight on one knee. My hips started getting all out of whack. Uh, lost the feeling in the ends of my fingers from using the crutches for four months. What happened? One part of the body isn't functioning properly and the rest feel it. Okay? When the body is operating correctly, every part is contributing to the good of the the body. That's what Paul's saying here. Look again at verse uh, 12. The role of the, the elders and deacons and pastors in a church, the role of the leadership in this church is to equip you for the work of the ministry. Because God has put you as a part of the body. 
And you are to do your part. Verse 12, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Look at verse 13, the end of verse 13, to a mature man. Just as a child, when the body parts are operating correctly, that child is growing up into maturity. The same thing is true for a body. The same thing is true for Maranatha Bible Church. When all of the parts are functioning as God has intended, you build yourselves up into maturity. You become more like Christ. When one member fails to do what God has gifted him, given him or her the ability to do, the body fails to live up to the maturity it could have. When one member sins, it affects the health of the body. You are one body in Christ. You need to serve the body of Christ and move the body along to maturity. Look again at verse 15. We're to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. That's the whole point. Is we want to see Christ glorified. And that happens when we all serve the body. There's one more analogy here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. The passage that makes every husband squirm. Ephesians 5, 25. Let me read it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of His body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul here is giving us Husbands, a lesson on what it means to be a husband. How to love our wives as Christ loved the church. But at the very end, he lets you in on a little secret. You know what? I'm not actually talking about marriage. Husband and wife marriage. That's actually not what I'm talking about. This mystery is great, but I'm actually speaking in reference to Christ in the church. Listen. These marriages here are shadows and vapors and signs of something much greater. And that is a marriage that is eternal. That is a marriage between Christ and His bride. That is a marriage between Christ and Maranatha Bible Church. Jesus loves His bride. She ain't always pretty. Okay? I know that. Every church has problems. Every church. But God has given Jesus a bride. 
And Jesus loves her bride. And Jesus anticipates her bride. And Jesus looks forward to, just as we look forward to that day we're with Christ, Jesus looks forward to that day when He is with His bride in heaven for eternity. He loves His church. He has given His life for the church. Shouldn't that affect how we view the church? Don't you think? Listen, the church isn't a, just a, a place where we attend. That's not what the church is. The church is something God has designed from before eternity as being the special dwelling of His Spirit here with His people. And He has a plan and a purpose for the church. When we come together as believers in Jesus Christ and we give our praise and worship to the Lord, and then because we have received from the Lord grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ, we share that love and that grace and that mercy with those around us. We embrace those who aren't like us. We love those who might otherwise we would think be unlovable. But we were unlovable and Christ loved us. And therefore we love those in the body. And when we do that, when we do that, the world sees something completely different. The world sees something they don't see anywhere else. And that is a people different and yet unified because of what Christ has done. And my prayer for you as a church is that you'll recognize what the church is. This wouldn't be a place you attend, but this would be a place you love and you give of yourself to for the glory of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you. And we praise You for taking us dead sinners and making us alive. We praise You and we thank You for the grace and the mercy we have received in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray for this body, Lord. I pray that this body would move into maturity, become more and more like Christ. It will be imperfect this side of glory, but I pray, Father, that Jesus Christ would be glorified here and that these people would love the church because we know you love the church. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Darren. I, uh, I wanted you to hear that because... And I want you to catch what he said right at the end. We don't want to be a, this to be a church where we just attend. We want this to be a church we love. And when we as believers comprehend the gospel, that Christ has redeemed us, then we're going to love each other. And we're going to, we're going to nurture relationships with each other. And we're going to resolve conflict with each other. And when that happens, the watching world is going to see something they've never seen before. And people are going to come to Christ And we get the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to them. And so do you see how it's upward, it's inward, and it's outward? It's upward in that we we love God and the gospel. And then we that affects how we treat each other. That's inward. And then that affects how we treat others outside the church. And it's outward. And so I wanted you to hear that because I think it's it's so crucial for us not just to attend, but for us to love the church. 
And then as I thought about what we're doing this, this Sunday on baptism, I thought it just dovetailed perfectly because baptism is a expression of our identification with and love for the church. We're identifying with the body of Christ. And so what Darren has talked about is a, is a very fitting um, preparation for our baptism service today. We love Christ and we love his bride. And those who are being baptized today are going to come here and testify that they too love Christ. And by doing that, they're going to testify that they love the bride of Christ, the church as well. For just a couple moments, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to preach very long. I just want to kind of set the stage for these nine people as they come up here to give their testimonies. In Acts chapter 2, the church started. This institution, this body of believers that that Darren has just spoke on, it began in Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit was given. Christ has been ascended. He's, He's been resurrected. He's been raised from the dead, and he's ascended into heaven. He's given his spirit. And here in Acts chapter 2, the believers are together, and suddenly this Holy Spirit comes. And then in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches that wonderful, wonderful sermon, a Christ-centered, gospel-centered sermon. And for 22 or 23 verses, he proclaims the excellencies of Christ. Look in verse 14. It says, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice... And he declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And he begins then to proclaim Jesus. Look what he says in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and put him to death. You see the balance here between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Peter goes and says, okay, listen, you killed Christ. You put him to death. But God in his sovereignty ordained this before the foundation of the whole world. And so he's speaking here of the death of Christ. Look at verse 24. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. So Peter then preaches the resurrection and proclaims that Christ has been raised and death has been conquered and sin has been done away with because of the resurrection of Christ. He goes and explains to this in verses 30 and 31 of David looking ahead to the resurrection of Christ. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. And so here's, the, here's this Peter you got to love Peter. Just a few days earlier, he denied Christ. And here he is publicly preaching the glories of Christ, his death and his resurrection. So Peter preaches a powerful, God-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered sermon. Now look at verse 37. Now, when the people heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do so here's these thousands of people there on the day of pentecost and peter has preached and he's told them about christ and he's told them that they killed christ but god has raised him from the dead and they're cut to the heart and they say what do we do with all this look what peter says peter said to them repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says two things. You just repent and you get baptized. That's it. You repent of your sin. You you turn from your sin and you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. You, You come to Him as your Lord and Savior. And then you become baptized. You say, what does He mean in verse 38 when He says, for the forgiveness of sins? Does that mean you have to be baptized to be saved? No. We're not saying that. We don't preach baptismal regeneration here. We're not saying that if you're going to be saved, you have to be baptized. That's not what Peter's saying. He's just saying that when you repent, you're going to want to demonstrate the reality of your faith in Christ and your conversion by being baptized, by demonstrating symbolically in the waters of baptism that you have been saved and you have turned from your sin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's saying. And that's what we're doing today. We are going to hear from nine people who are going to come up here and they're going to say exactly this. They're going to say, I've repented of my sin. I am embracing the Lord Jesus Christ and I have been forgiven. Three things I want you to notice very briefly. Number one, salvation and baptism are inseparably linked. Salvation and baptism are inseparably linked. What I mean by that is they're so closely connected. When you're saved, you want to be baptized. And look at this. Look at verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people saved. 3,000 people baptized. Instantaneously. You see that? Isn't that amazing? Here's here's new converts, people coming to Christ. 3,000 of them. And they move from conversion right into baptism. Why? Because they immediately want to identify themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation and baptism are inseparably linked. We're not saying you have to be baptized to be saved, but we're saying when you're saved, you want to be baptized because you want to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the first thing I want you to notice is they're inseparably linked. Number two, immersion is the proper mode for baptism. You say, where do you get that? Verses 38 and verse 41 Say, Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in verse 38. Verse 41 says, and there were that day, those who had received his word were baptized. The word baptism itself literally means to immerse or to dip or to drown. All right. Now, I know when you nine people hear that, you get a little worried. Understandably so. We won't do that today. I promise there will be no drownings. There will be lifeguards posted around the outside. Okay. hundred people, 200 people here to watch you. It'll be okay. But it means to put yourself completely under, to dip, to immerse, to sink yourself fully into. That's the word. That's what it means. And so I don't think we're inferring here by saying that these people, all 3,000, were dunked, immersed. They found some water, and it's very possible. There are many pools in Jerusalem. They found some water, and 3,000 people were baptized. Can you imagine that baptism service? That may be the biggest baptism service in the history of the church, right there. And they publicly professed the Lord Jesus Christ. Every baptism in Scripture is always by immersion. Matthew 3.16 says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Jesus himself was baptized by immersion. Mark 1.5 says they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. John 3, verse 23, John was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. That's a good reason to go baptize in a place because there's a lot of water there, right? What does that mean? That means they put them in the water. It's by immersion. Acts chapter 8, 
It says they ordered, he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water and Philip as well as the eunuch and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. So immersion is consistent with biblical baptism, believers' baptism. And it's only immersion that fits the reality of which baptism is a picture. Baptism is a picture of the the washing away of your sin, the passing away of your old life. And as you come up out of the water, is a symbol of new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why every baptism that's described in the pages of Scripture is immersion. It's believers' baptism. It's for the saints, those who have trusted Christ. And so it is the proper mode. The third thing I want you to notice is that baptism illustrates our union with Christ's death and resurrection. Baptism illustrates our union with with Christ's death and resurrection. These people here, having heard this message by Peter, publicly proclaimed their union with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're saying, I'm dead. I'm not alive anymore. It's not about me. I'm living for Christ. And I want to tell the whole world, I'm not living for myself. I have been united with and identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to publicly profess that. Romans chapter 6, speaking of spiritual baptism, says this. It says, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So those who are baptized are saying, I am publicly testifying that I have died with Christ and I have been raised with Christ. I'm going to read for you what the early Christians said at their baptism. This is what they said. I hereby confess in my willing submission to this divinely appointed ordinance, my glad obedience to my Lord and Savior. In this symbolic way, I show my identification with the one who bore my sins and took my place, died in my stead, was buried and rose again for my justification as Christ went through the reality of suffering and death to secure my salvation. So, in being immersed into water and coming out, I thus publicly declare my identification with my Lord and His death, burial and resurrection on my behalf with the intention to walk with him in newness of life and function as a member of his body. That's what these nine people are going to say this morning. And so we wanted to give you that as, a, as just kind of a backdrop. We're going to ask these nine people to come forward right now. Let me get the list so I know. Joan Coates, Joseph Kalpage, Lee Jensen, Derek Kerr, Brett McPherson, Nisa McPherson, Rick Sainkombe, Jamie Sainkombe, and Sandy Smith. All nine of these people want to give their testimonies. We've asked them to write down and give a, a clear, concise statement as to what Christ has done in them and through them. And so uh, we're going to have them share that with you. And then uh, we will go down together to the exceedingly warm pond <laughs> and baptize them. So, Joan, we're going to ask you to go first. And so please share your testimony with us. Okay. 
First of all, I'd like to thank the members of my family, my husband Dean, my daughter Melissa, and my son Jared, for without their example of obedience in getting baptized first in previous years, I may never have gotten to this point today. You see, as I was growing up, I was often accused by my parents as being stubborn. I guess that still hasn't changed. (laughs) I was raised in a Christian family and baptized as an infant. I do not remember a specific time of accepting Christ, but I do remember praying to him around the age of seven or eight. I led what I thought was a fairly obedient life until I graduated high school. Then, a few years of running with the wrong crowd and sowing my wild oats quickly brought me back to my knees in prayer, asking for God's forgiveness and direction. About that time, I met Dean, and slowly together we've resumed our spiritual journey. I have to admit that I had a hard time accepting the fact that I should be baptized. I had all sorts of reasons why I shouldn't have to. Number one, how I hate being pushed underwater until I've had the chance to get used to it. (laughs) Can anybody identify with that? I also felt my life was already bearing fruit, and everyone already knew I was a follower of Christ. Yet each time baptism classes came around, the Holy Spirit would start on me again, convicting me I really needed to do this. Earlier this summer, Todd preached a sermon on the Holy Spirit. I remember him saying something like, don't ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit. At that point, I was convinced that message was for me. I threw up my spiritual hands and said, all right, I give up, I'll do it. (laughs) I can't honestly say I felt real relief coming to this decision, but I did know it was the right thing to do. As a gardener, I know how a properly pruned plant will produce an abundance of flowers and fruit versus one that is only casually tended. I can learn a lot from my master gardener. Right now, he's forcing me to send down deeper roots, which in return will yield stronger branches and hopefully an abundant harvest. So with this baptism, I am proclaiming that I am trusting God to do what he has to do in my life for his glory. The 23rd Psalm, which has always been a source of comfort and strength to me, says it well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. My name is Lee. I grew up in a small farm town called Grant, just north of here, in a good home with a younger sister and younger brother. During my teenage years, I worked on a dairy farm that taught me the value of work and kept me out of trouble for the most part. I wasn't one that attended church on Sundays, but I do remember going a few times. After I graduated from high school, I started engaging in sinful activities that extended into my mid-20s. Parties and alcohol were my main focus in life. But when I was 26, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and I almost lost my life. After a two-year battle with Crohn's, a life-changing surgery, and a divorce, I was at the lowest point in my life. I was lost, confused, hopeless, and heartbroken. It took losing all I had for my stubborn heart to open and realize that I needed God in my life. 
I started praying to God for help and going to church on Sundays and reading the Bible. I started to believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Lord helped me realize that there were some addictions in my life. And with the help of his strength, I've been able to overcome some of them. One Bible verse that has helped me comes from 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But if you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Jesus went to the cross and died for me. That kind of love surpasses my understanding. I thank him every day for coming into my life and leading me to the path of sanctification. I know that I'm not perfect and I still fall at times, but Philippians 4.13 says I can do everything through him who gives me strength. and I'm able to get back up on my feet and move forward again. At this point in my life, I'm seeking Christ every day, and each day I feel my spirit growing stronger in the Lord. I have a hunger to know Jesus more, and I thank him for each day that I have to get to know him better. Thank you, Jesus. I was born in 1993 in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I've always lived in a good Christian home. All of my life, I've been taught the wonders of God's glory and how he sent his son Jesus to earth to save me from my sins. When I was four years old, after talking about it a lot with my parents, I sat down and prayed the prayer to ask Jesus Christ to be my savior. When I was six, at a vacation Bible school, I somewhat accidentally prayed the prayer again. I went home crying that day because I thought that if you asked Jesus to be your savior twice, it would undo my prayer and I would go to hell. My parents quickly told me I was okay. During my 7th grade through ninth grade years, I found out how much I needed God in my life. I loved going to youth group, and I realized how without God, I'm nothing. I understood why I needed Jesus Christ in my life, and I wanted him there. I went through some really hard times in those years, but it never really tested or made me question my faith. It only made it stronger. Psalms 37:39 says, But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in times of trouble. God helped me through all the difficulties I experienced those three years, and since then, I have tried to grow in my faith and have a deeper relationship with Christ. Recently, I have been thinking a lot about getting baptized. The Bible says it so plainly that it's necessary, and our church holds it to a very high importance. And I realized that in order to grow deeper in my relationship with Jesus Christ, I wanted to get baptized. In my life, during all the challenges and hard times, I have discovered that, like it says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. On the overview, I have divided my testimony into three categories. The first is my past childhood. Uh, Second is my teen or young adulthood. And third, my present and future. Some 60 years plus ago, I was dubbed Sandra Charlene, my middle name after my now 84-year-old mother, who was seeped in the religious Bentleyite group of my childhood. This false church branched into three divisions and espoused to many garbled doctrines, including one, what they term the everlasting gospel, which means that God is going to bless everyone now and in 
eternity, unlike the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Two, the belief that God causes all things to the point that humans are puppets and pawns of his will and are not responsible for their own words and deeds. And three, the belief that one in hell is as fitted, content, and or happy as one in heaven. In my late teens, I segued into my now 86-year-old father's religious views and group referred to as the home church. There was little change in the switch from my mother's religion where there was seldom singing, rare prayer, as this was a private matter between God and the believer to be kept for the closet in secret and not openly in public or for that matter the dinner table and lastly the Lord's Supper was only as often as you do in remembrance of me the latter meaning sporadically about once every two to three years there was no emphasis on committing oneself to the Lordship of Christ scripture was manipulatively twisted by some but in God's kindness and because of my goals to ease from stalemate frustrating Bible sessions out of the home church I eventually was redirected by God into a new way of spiritual understanding where words were not minced and God's truth was clearly proclaimed Maranatha right (laughs) and God granted me understanding that the old way was not his way the new direction was to lead me to repentance of sins for I had a lot of unpleasing serial behavior I believe that the glorified almighty incarnate son of God Jesus died for me at Calvary and was buried and rose the third day to eternal life since death couldn't keep him down his finished work redeemed me and my sins are forgiven I am now committed to a life of obedience and servitude with gratitude and appreciation for the new real life that awaits me thank you Lord and lastly that is why I want to obey God's command to be baptized today thank you As long as I can remember, I have called myself a Christian. I grew up with a Christian mother, but a father who was not a believer or even much of a father except by name. My mom was wonderful and explained to me that God was my father and looks after the fatherless. I always remember feeling God's love and remember saying the prayer to ask Jesus into my heart many times at day camp and at Sunday school. During high school, I was actively involved in youth group and if asked would call myself a believer, but I don't think I had a personal relationship with Christ. He was just a fixture in my life, a constant. When I moved on to college, what simple spiritual life I had took a backseat to my busy schedule and the things that I thought brought me pleasure. I lived for myself, focusing on my friends, school, and activities, never giving God much thought. I did not have a church that I attended during college, and not having a church family made it even easier to fall farther away from God. Not until I moved back to Grand Rapids did I give much thought to bringing Christ back into the center of my life. We began attending Maranatha again, and I was happy to be back to that good feeling I got when I went to church once or twice a month, and being back with a church family made me get back into a mediocre prayer life and occasional Bible reading. About five years ago, I realized that this wasn't the life God wanted me to live, and I wasn't living for him. I wanted to know him and to follow his commands and to live only for him, not for the world. The reality of what he did for me finally hit home, and it astounded me. I wanted to worship him in all areas of my life and bear fruit for him. My life has been changed because I now put my walk with God first in in my life. Being part of a small group and other church activities has really helped me to grow and learn so much. Being an active part of the church is now a priority in our family's lives. Is it easy now? No, I struggle all the time with making time to study my Bible or finding uninterrupted time to pray. 
And it is hard to trust in God when faced with so many trials and hardships, especially all the health issues that I've had this past year. But I know that God loves me and that I am his child and that he will always be with me to guide and love me. <clears throat> I will end with one of my favorite verses from Psalms 68, 19 through 20. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is the God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. I'm just going to borrow hers and be done. <laughs> Feels like a bit of college speech class again, but it's a very big class. So, well, I grew up in a non-Christian home with very little exposure to the church. My mother's family was Catholic, but she had pulled away from the church at an early age. My father's family was Methodist, and I did attend church very sporadically with my grandmother. Every few years, I would attend a service or go to vacation Bible school. I also attended Awana for several years at a friend's Baptist church. Looking back, I guess I did have some exposure to the church, but none of it was taught or reinforced at home. I was involved in band and sports in high school and stayed focused on the activities that I thought were important to me. I also spent a lot of time with my friends and was not at home much with my family. I miss the great benefits that a youth group can provide to a young boy going through school and adolescence. Without Jesus Christ and the church as a foundation of my life, I was unable to build strong family bonds that would last into adulthood. I went to college right after school and moved out of the house at 17. College started out great, and I was very excited to be on my own. I was in the marching band and had many activities to keep me busy. As the college years went on, the classes got a bit harder, and my grades began to slip. I started missing a class here or there and was able to distract myself from the work by going to parties and drinking. It is easy to look back now and see that I could have used the wisdom of the Bible and a walk with Jesus Christ to keep me focused on school and my studies. There were many churches and outreaches on and around campus, but I never understood that that's what I needed the most. I was too, be too busy being focused on the ways of the world. It wasn't until I got married and began to have children that I realized I needed something else in my life. We moved back to Comstock Park in 2000 and began to attend Maranatha shortly after. I was very indifferent in the beginning. I just went through the message of church. I knew this is where I needed to be, both as an individual and for my family, but I had a hard time letting the Lord into my heart. I began to slowly loosen up and get involved in activities in the church. I even started to sing during the service, which was a big step for me. I felt myself changing as I opened up and let the words and the songs take root in my heart. I have no wow moment as to when I became saved. I struggled with this as I prepared my testimony, but I was assured that was all right. About six years ago, I accepted Jesus Christ into my heart and became a true Christian. I had always believed in Jesus and God, but never understood how this affected my everyday life. I never owned a copy of the Bible and thought of it as a novel or a story, not as a true word of God. Once I started reading and studying the Bible, I could apply it to my life. I began to re relax and let the little problems and trials be just that, little problems in light of a greater purpose. My family life began to change as well. I began to use the Bible to instruct and pray with my wife and kids. I could see that with the help of God's word and the church family, I would have help in raising my kids. I also began to use my gifts to help out with the WANA program and sing in the choir. We also joined a small group and have built strong bonds with brothers and sisters in Christ. This has brought a greater love and understanding of what it means to be a true Christian.
I grew up in a church-going family and went to a Christian school until I was in sixth grade. I had all the head knowledge of the gospel and the Bible stories. I remember asking Jesus to come into my heart many times when I was younger, but as I got older, I wasn't following any of his commands. I rebelled against my mother in high school and sought fulfillment in men and drugs. I continued down this path through college, and all the while I was calling myself a Christian and sporadically attending church. Near my 24th birthday, I recognized that I was out of control and needed help. I knew I was not right with God. I prayed one night that God would help me turn my life around. I continued to drink and party, but now I see that God was working in my life. At my 24th birthday celebration, I was arrested for drunk driving and spent the night in jail. I was charged with restricted license and many fines. Because of the fines, I had no choice but to move into my mother's house. God was taking me out of a bad situation and placing me with Christian people. My sister-in-law and I started studying the Bible together, and I started attending church. Christmas of that year, an old friend got a hold of me. He told me of how he had been saved and had been working at a camp in Colorado as a counselor. With selfish motives, I decided to apply to this camp also. Since I was going to school to be a teacher, I thought a counseling job would look good on a resume. I began studying and praying in preparation for the counseling interview. The interview took place on the phone with the camp director. When I was talking to him, he helped me see that I was omitting parts of the Bible that didn't suit my life and that this was not right. He helped me see who God is and why it is important to see the Bible as the infallible word of God. At this camp, I was stretched, challenged, and taught. I grew in my understanding of my sinful self, man's sinful state, God's holiness, and what it truly means to be a follower of Christ. I now understand that believing in Jesus and living by Jesus' commands are entirely different. Even though I had asked Jesus into my heart as a child, I don't believe I was saved until after my 24th birthday. I don't believe I was saved before this because the fruit of my life was not that of a believer. Because of my past with drugs, men, and rebellion, one of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. Also, since I lived according to my sinful desires while claiming to have a relationship with Christ, 1 John 3, 9 is a verse I like to remember. It reads, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he is born of God. Today I can happily say that I hate sin. I still struggle daily with doing what I know I should, but I know God changed my heart because I desire to do what he has commanded me to do. And in that I rejoice. I grew up in the Catholic Church. I was taught who Jesus is and who God is, but I never felt like I could really relate to him. I still remember as a young boy asking Christ to be my Savior, waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend upon me in some instant and emotional way, as if I'd feel some supernatural possession take over. That never happened. By the time I was 18 and out from under my parents' control, it was pretty obvious who was at the wheel in my heart. I'd been dancing around with sin, playing with fire for many years, but now on my own, unchecked, sin was free to let me chase after my own lust. And that is exactly what I did. I lost a close girlfriend to suicide early on. I used that as an excuse to throw myself into the deceiving arms of sinful pleasure, searching for solace in the sinking sand. As my depression grew, so did my use of drugs and alcohol. I was also constantly chasing after girls to try to fill this void in my soul. I'd grown so far from my friends and family that my mother had to write me a letter to communicate with me, even though we lived in the same town. 
I remember the shame I felt for living my life but not wanting or willing to change. My depression ran quite deep to the point where I contemplated to complete the complete meaningless of my life and the pain that it brought me just to wake up in the morning. This scared me beyond belief. About that time was when my dear grandmother passed away. I was 23 years old. This truly was the breaking point for me. I was very close to her, and her death destroyed what little grip I had in reality left in me. I moved back home with my parents to clean up and get get my head right. This was the beginning of hope. When I finally moved back out again, I was at least self-sufficient, but still had a heart of sin. I remember one particular Saturday getting a phone call from my mom. She invited me to come to church with the family. I thought, well, I haven't anything to lose. I haven't been in a long while. That Sunday morning, the pastor shared enough of the gospel for the spirit to grip my heart. Tears streamed down my cheeks as I knew that at that moment my heart had changed. A love for sin was replaced with a love for Christ. I was finally broken so I could repent and be made new. Since that day, my heart and my life have made a 180-degree turn. The word of God, which was once nonsense to me, was open to my heart, and I could finally understand it and digest its sweetness. Where the fruit of my life before was rotten, evident of my evil heart, now new fruit was blossoming from a pure heart made clean by the blood of Christ. While I still have bumps in the road, the direction of my life is holiness and sanctification. My heart weeps for the lost in this world, especially those walking in similar paths as I have traveled. I want them to know true love, true peace, true contentment, and true purpose. Above all else, I know that Jesus Christ is Lord over all, and that I, a once worthless, drug-abusing, sin-addicted fool, is now saved by grace alone, and have been given faith to be a child of the one true God. Ezekiel 36, 25-27 states, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I started out years ago as an atheist, and then while I was in high school, I was influenced by my best friend, Megan, who was a Christian, to at least believe in the possibility that there was a God. So I took a baby step and became an agnostic. In February of 2009, I took another baby step and accepted that there was a God, but I still didn't believe in Christ. Then about six months later, I received a Bible from my uncle for my birthday, for I had expressed an interest that I wanted to know more about Jesus. I started reading it, but I read it more like a storybook and never understood what it was saying until I came to Maranatha. My great-grandfather from Oregon helped me find Maranatha by checking for churches online in the Comstock Park area. So that's how God brought me to Maranatha. That's when I understood what the gospel meant and truly placed my faith in Christ. Two verses that helped me understand what the cross meant are Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Psalms 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Some changes in my life I have experienced since I became a believer. I used to love violence in movies, books, and video games, but now I can't stand it. Some of the things I used to take pleasure in, I no longer do. I see them as the sinful acts they are. I now have a peace and calmness in my life that I didn't experience before. I have a new desire to learn God's word and follow Christ and his command to be baptized, which is why I'm here today.
Is your heart blessed as much as mine is? Yes. These uh, nine people are trophies of God's grace, as are you if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. And so uh, what a joy to hear them publicly and boldly and unashamedly uh, preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.